Welcome to the Beyond the Pearls podcast, based on the Morning Report series from Elsevier. This podcast has been adapted for audio in collaboration with series editor Dr. Raj Dasgupta, as well as the volume editor for each book. Each episode features an in-depth case dissection format and aims to deliver practical, concise, and easy-to-digest information. And now, here's today's episode. Welcome to the Beyond the Pearls podcast. My name is Enrica Fung, and I am a nephrologist at the Department of Veterans Affairs Hospital at Loma Linda. I'm also an assistant professor at Loma Linda University School of Medicine. You can find me on Twitter at EnricaF2. That is E-N-R-I-C-A-F-2, as in the number 2. Now, on to today's case. We have a 55-year-old male with type 2 diabetes who presents to his primary care doctor for a routine checkup. His diabetes is well-controlled on metformin, but he has been found to be hypertensive on the last few clinic visits, with blood pressures ranging from 140 to 150 systolic, over 70 to 80 diastolic. He was started on benazepril, which is an angiotensin-converting enzyme inhibitor, or ACE inhibitor. He was told to go to the lab one to two weeks later to check a basic metabolic panel. But, just like all of, a lot of our other patients, he was a busy man, he was at work, he forgot to check his labs, and a month passes by. Then he started to feel nauseous and has fatigue, palpitations, shortness of breath, and pins and needles peripherally. So, he went to the local emergency room. So. If you were the emergency room physician, what would you do? So remember that a thorough history and physical exam is always the cornerstone of effective medical treatment. However, it is not always appropriate to delay workup and treatment until a formal history and physical exam has been completed. This is often the case in the emergency room setting, where the top priority is to rule out life-threatening conditions. So in this situation, with a patient who has risk factors and has cardiac symptoms, it is appropriate to jump to some testing immediately. In this situation, a STAT, electrocardiogram or ECG, serial cardiac enzymes, i.e. troponin levels, and basic labs such as basic metabolic panel and complete blood count was obtained immediately. So while you're waiting for the lab results to return, the technician completed the ECG and brought it to your attention. If you're following along the chapter, please look at figure one for the ECG. The ECG shows a regular pulse rate around 70 beats per minute, a regular rhythm and a normal axis. Seems like it's a little bit difficult to appreciate the P waves in this situation. So it's not really clear if the patient is in sinus rhythm or not. There is a widened QRS complex which means that it's greater than three small boxes in width, and it seems like some of the T waves are peaked. The QT intervals appear to be normal, that is, it is half of the distance between the RR intervals, and appears that there are no ST segment changes, Q waves, or T wave inversions, such as suggest a old or new cardiac ischemia. In this situation, the widened QRS should really pique your attention. It indicates that there's an abnormal slowing of the electric conduction through the heart during the systolic phase. So this can be seen in a bundle branch block, ventricular place rhythm, 
or electrolyte abnormality that causes an action potential slowing. In this EKG, there are no findings to suggest a bundle branch block, so this is less likely. Although there is an absence of P waves initially that may suggest to you that there is a ventricular lipase rhythm, the normal QRS axis and the upright T waves throughout the ECG points against this. So taken together, the findings seem to suggest that it is more likely that there is a severe electrolyte abnormality. However, an ECG interpretation should always be done with consideration of the whole clinical picture. While you're reading the ECG, the nurse urgently approaches you, stating that his labs show a potassium level of 7 milliequivalents per liter. This is quite high. So at this time, let us review together what are the common ECG findings that are seen in hyperkalemia. Potassium is a key component in the action potential that propagate the electrochemical signal throughout the heart. Thus, the changes in the serum concentration can dramatically affect the ECG. So a lot of medical students and residents remember the peak T waves that are seen in hyperkalemia. However, this is generally associated with only a moderate level of hyperkalemia, and the absence or the presence of it does not necessarily always truly indicate the exact level of hyperkalemia. More importantly, remember the ECG changes that are found in hyperkalemia that is more severe. So at this point in time, if the hyperkalemia is very severe, you can see things such as a widened QRS complex, prolonged PR interval, absence of P waves, and finally, a sine wave in the ECG morphologically. I hope you don't really get to see this in the career because obviously at that point, the patient will be coding and will be very ill. So these ECG findings are seen in more extreme levels of hyperkalemia, and they are important to remember. What are the clinical manifestations of hyperkalemia? Most patients with mild hyperkalemia are not symptomatic. However, as the hyperkalemia worsens, patients could present sometimes with some nonspecific symptoms such as fatigue, weakness, nausea, and abdominal pain. They could sometimes also have severe symptoms like paresthesias, muscle weakness or paralysis, or cardiac palpitations. How do you emergently treat hyperkalemia? So untreated hyperkalemia, of course, is very dangerous because of what we discussed earlier. It has pronounced effects on cardiac electrophysiology and affects the resting membrane potential in the heart, action potential velocity and duration, and electrical propagation throughout the heart. So the first thing to do, in, especially in cases of severe hyperkalemia, is to try to stabilize the cardiac membrane by mitigating the adverse electrophysiological effects of potassium. So this can be done by giving intravenous calcium. So oftentimes we will give calcium gluconate, and it can be given over two to three minutes. Calcium chloride can be used, but generally requires a lower dose, and um, sometimes a central line is needed due to concerns for necrosis. So in giving treatments to try to stabilize the cardiac membrane, this helps to reverse any ECG changes described earlier, but this really only works for about 30 minutes or so. So after you try to stabilize the membrane, 
it is also important to give other things that permanently removes the potassium. Also remember that IV calcium is relatively contraindicated in treatment of hyperkalemia that's caused by digoxin. Digoxin is a unique scenario, so it is worthwhile to spend a couple of minutes talking about it. So hyperkalemia is often seen in digoxin toxicity because remember that digoxin inhibits the sodium potassium ATPase. If you're following along on the text, there's a nice diagram that depicts the sodium ATPase and its effect on the cellular membrane. But generally speaking, for patients with digoxin toxicity, the hyperkalemia itself is not necessarily the point of contention. So it is better to use some specific digoxin treatments, such as the fragment antigen binding or FAB fragments, which is an antibody against digoxin, to administer appropriately when digoxin toxicity is diagnosed. This in itself would also help to correct the hyperkalemia because the sodium-potassium ATPase enzyme will begin to work again. If you're following along on the text, please also review the very nice picture that shows the resting membrane potential. To review this, help you understand how some of these medicines work, such as digoxin. So now let's talk about how to actually lower the serum-potassium levels. Just to remind you from what we discussed earlier, the calcium only stabilizes the membrane. So in order to lower the potassium, there are other methods to do this. The first is to remove the potassium via the gastrointestinal tract or the renal system. And the second is to try to shift the potassium directly into the body cells. Sodium polystyrene sulfonate, or the trait name Kixlate, is a sodium-potassium exchanger that works in the intestines to serve to promote GI potassium loss. So remember that this really only functions well if the patient is having regular bowel movements, and sometimes it is important to add some laxatives. So because of the way it works, it is contraindicated for patients with ileus as it can cause bowel necrosis, and is also contraindicated for patients that had had recent bowel surgery. If it is available to you, some of the newer agents, such as sodium, zirconium, cyclosilicate, or localma as a trade name, is also a good option as it acts relatively quickly to remove potassium in the gastrointestinal tract. In the chronic setting, there's also another newer agent called pteromere, or feltessa as a brand name. However, this is not a good agent to be used in the acute setting because it can take up to 8 to 9 hours for the drug to work. Another option is to try to remove the potassium using the kidneys. So loop diuretics can pause the sodium and potassium reabsorption in the kidney so it can promote renal potassium loss. This is actually preferred for patients who are clinically volume overloaded and already require diuresis. Another alternative is that if you're going to use this as a modality for someone that's euvolemic, you can give them some intravenous solution and then give them some diuretics. Maintain euvolemia. Next, in terms of agents that are helpful for shifting the potassium inside the cells, the things that come into mind are insulin and beta-2 agonists. The general doses in these agents are usually insulin 10 units, usually given with dextrose for people that are euglycemic to avoid hypoglycemia. 
And for beta-2 agonists, generally speaking, albuterol nebulized, 10 to 20 milligrams is used. Bicarbonate, generally one ampule or 25 milligram IV push can also be used to shift the potassium inside the cells. These treatments do work very well in acute setting, but do not actually remove the potassium. So if no further treatment is used, the potassium will eventually return back to the original levels. So these type of treatments should also be accompanied by a way to remove the potassium. So finally, hemodialysis can be employed in certain situations. Hemodialysis can aid in removal of potassium, other electrolyte abnormalities, and also to help to correct any volume issues if there are. However, just keep in mind that hemodialysis in most centers, usually even in the best case scenario, can take several hours to set up. Unless the patient is already end-stage kidney disease and already has hemodialysis access in place, it often also takes a while for the nurses and the machines to be set up properly. So it is important that other modalities are used simultaneously in correction of the potassium issues. It is appropriate to consider it, however, especially in cases where patients have severe acute kidney injury and or if they have some sort of pathophysiology that causes massive and continuous self-death, such as rhabdomyolysis, severe burns, or tumor lysis syndrome. So let's circle back to the case. Our patient was given calcium, and the ECG normalizes, and he was also given insulin D50 for shifting of the potassium and kickslate in an attempt to remove some of the potassium. So during this time, your patient discloses that he has been short of breath just walking a few blocks and has been waking up at night out of breath as well too. And he also reports that he has chronic back pain, which has been worsening, so he has been taking ibuprofen four times a day. Now start thinking about what your differential may be in this situation. He finally got a chance to fully examine him. He is a febrile and has a blood pressure of 105 over 66, pulse was 79, Respiratory rate was 26, and oxygen saturation was 88% on room air. There is juggler venous distension in his neck, crackles in his lungs, and 2-plus bilateral lower extremity edema in his legs. So these findings are consistent with new-onset congestive heart failure. So he is then given furosemide 40 mg IV push, and the basic metabolic panel results are as follows. Sodium-132, chloride-94, carbon dioxide, 18 millimoles per liter, BUN, 35 milligrams per deciliter, and creatinine, 3.2. The view of his medical records reviews that his baseline creatinine is 0.8. So a little pearl for you in that in a patient with acute kidney injury, you may actually need to use higher doses of furosemide um, if the first dose isn't working. So you may have to escalate up the dose depending on the situation. So let's now review what are the common causes of hyperkalemia. Of course, it is important to understand that for him or any other patient that you may have because it will help you understand how you can manage this problem long term. So the few main categories of hyperkalemia are increased intake of potassium, transcellular shifts of potassium, or decreased excretion of potassium. Keep in mind that intake alone in most cases, really is not enough for a rise in potassium. 
because the body is really good about regulating homeostasis, unless there are cases where there's ex- decreased excretion for whatever reasons, such as in patients who have severe kidney disease or end-stage kidney disease. Nevertheless, it is important to educate patients that are at risk for hyperkalemia about what foods that may make the situation worse if they have a history of hyperkalemia. The next cause is transcellular shifts of potassium. So remember the intracellular level of potassium is much higher than in the serum. So in cases where there's transcellular shifts, that can increase the serum potassium without having an actual increase in the total body potassium. So you can try to do some of these maneuvers to try to correct any causes of transcellular shifts. So for example, a transcellular shift can occur in cases of acidemia, insulin insufficiency, or beta blockers, digoxin intoxication, or succinylcholine use. And finally, let's talk a little bit more in detail about how potassium is removed from kidneys. So the first step in removal of potassium from the kidneys is the filtration and the delivery of the potassium in the tubules. So a decrease in the glomerular filtration rate can cause hyperkalemia. So this is commonly seen in people who have any type of kidney disease, whether it is acute or chronic. In some situations where there is a decrease and decrease effective arterial volume, that can cause problems where there is a pre-renal acute kidney injury in cases such as exacerbation of heart failure, third spacing, hypovolemia, or sepsis. In these types of situations, there may be also an issue where there is a change in the effective delivery of potassium and other solutes into the distal part of the tubule, so hence it is more difficult for that to be excreted. So in this type of situation where there is hypovolemia or decrease in effective arterial volume, you obviously wanted to correct that by giving fluids or optimizing cardiac function, possibly giving albumin and cirrhosis. The second step in in the excretion of potassium from the kidneys is the secretion in the more distal part of the tubule and the principal cells. In the latter parts of the tubule, the amount of potassium that excreted is controlled mainly by aldosterone. So anything that mitigates the effects of aldosterone can cause hyperkalemia. It is helpful to review the diagram if you're following all of the text regarding the different zones of the cortex and the medulla of the adrenal gland. So remember that this gland helps to control hormones that are secreted in regulation of potassium. Conditions that cause a decrease in renin secretion will in turn cause a decrease in aldosterone and hyperkalemia will result. So some of the examples of this include hypoaldosteronism, or so-called type 4 renal tubular acidosis that is commonly seen in diabetes, non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drug use, also any decrease in the aldosterone synthesis can also cause hyperkalemia. So for example, angiotensin-converting enzyme inhibitors or ACE inhibitors, angiotensin receptor blockers or so-called ARBs. So in this situation, what do you think is the cause? So it seems like the patient is having a heart failure exacerbation and is also taking high dose 
non-steroidal anti-inflammatories without knowing that he has this problem. So everything combined, he probably has a decreased renal perfusion due to the heart failure exacerbation. And then the non-steroidal anti-inflammatories can lead up to acute kidney injury and also the decrease in renin. And that, everything taken together, will cause the hyperkalemia. And finally, the patient remember that he's also on an ACE inhibitor, which directly inhibits the aldosterone and causes hyperkalemia. While angiotensin-converting enzyme inhibitors are really helpful in general situations in terms of blood pressure control and also cardiac and renal protection, remember that it also does decrease the renal GFR. So in this situation, it also does increases risk of getting hyperkalemia. So let's move to the conclusion in this case. So in this situation, the patient was admitted to the intensive care unit and he was placed on a furosemide drip. He improved over the next few days and became euvolemic and his kidney function finally, thankfully, returned to baseline. A transthoracic echocardiogram is performed and it shows global hypokalemesis in the left ventricle with an ejection fraction of 40%, but a nuclear medicine stress test shows no inducible ischemia. Because the patient's hyperkalemia was not solely caused by an ACE inhibitor, he was restarted on a benazepril, beta blocker, and loop diuretic prior to discharge for management of his heart failure. And he follows up with his primary care physician a week after discharge, and he is now asymptomatic. I hope that you have enjoyed this podcast and that this helped you review the causes and the treatment of hyperkalemia. Thank you for listening to the Beyond the Pearls podcast from Inside the Boards. This podcast is executive produced by Christopher Brightigan and Dr. Patrick Beeman. This podcast is intended for educational purposes only and is not medical advice. Ars longa, vita brevis.